we don't want the situation where in three years time or five years time, we've got another inquiry about food pricing in remote community. We hope the boldness of Alpa and the success of Healthy Stores 2020 will encourage the Australian retail sector to join Alpa to transform Australia's food retail sector to be health enabling. Pretty big claim. It's pretty exciting. I don't know why the government is so reluctant to consider food subsidy for remote communities. The cost benefit in terms of health saving would have to outweigh the cost of the subsidy. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome, Julie. It's so good to have the chance to speak with you for Nourishing Matters. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Anthea. I'm on the Larrakia lands, beautiful country of the Larrakia peoples. Beautiful Darwin, I miss it. And, and, and how is Darwin? Darwin is absolutely beautiful. The market's beautiful. Coconuts, mangoes. What more could you ask for? It's a beautiful place to be. Send, sending out lots of good wishes to all of my colleagues in lockdown at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I'm speaking with Dr. Julie Brimblecombe, someone who is widely admired and much loved for her contributions over many years in the fields of remote food security and nutrition research, policy advocacy, and community-led co-designed healthy food solutions, particularly with remote communities and food stores. Julie is currently the Associate Professor of Public Health Nutrition in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food at Monash University, and she maintains a close relationship with the Menzies School of Health Research at Charles Darwin University, where she was a senior research leader for many years and is now an honorary fellow. Is, is that right, Julie? Is that what, What's your connection with CDU these days? Yes, Charles Darwin University and Menzies School of Health Research. So I'm actually sitting at Menzies School of Research right now. I'm an honorary fellow with Menzies, and I certainly have lots of projects happening in collaboration with Menzies and um, with Charles Darwin University. I've got the privilege of co-supervising a a student uh, with Associate Professor Natasha Stacey at Charles Darwin University. So I still feel very connected with uh, the Northern Territory and the top end of Australia. And Julie, you've worked cross-culturally in the South Pacific and with remote Northern Territory Aboriginal communities for over 20 years. And it's the story of your work with remote food stores and communities and of the leadership of these communities to lead and tackle healthy food and food security challenges that we're discussing today. Julie, you've participated in or have been the force behind numerous research projects that over the past 10 to 20 years have created an incredible body of knowledge, trust and communities of practice that together really are helping to transform people's lives, diets and health. Early on around 2008, there was the RIST, the Remote Indigenous Stores and Takeaways Project. You were also involved in various ways with Nats and SAP, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nutrition Strategy and Action Plan that ran from 2000 to 2010. 
And around about the time we met, you created and led the Good Food Systems Project that ran from 2009 to 14 to research and scope out community-based local food systems with four remote top-end communities. And from that, you and they developed the Good Food Planning Tool that continues to be widely used and adapted by communities across rural and remote Australia. So bravo you and that. It's such a great tool. I love it. (laughs) Julie, I think your early university days and degrees were in Queensland and New South Wales. But then you went on to complete postgraduate studies in Darwin. Is, is that right? Yes, I did a Bachelor of Science and my postgraduate diploma in nutrition and dietetics in Queensland. Then I did my Master of Public Health with the University of New South Wales. And then I did my PhD up here with Charles Darwin University. Yeah. And what first drew you to the Northern Territory and to your immersion in remote health and nutrition and and your love of working with remote Northern Territory communities. Thanks for that introduction, Anthea. That's uh, that's just amazing. It's certainly been a fantastic journey that I've been able to go on with so many different people. I feel very privileged to have had the opportunities working in this area that I've had. But uh, how did I get up to the Northern Territory in the first place? I think I always had such a passion for public health nutrition. I Obviously, when I was younger, I didn't realise that it was public health nutrition, but I wanted to work with the communities and to do something around nutrition. That took me on the journey to study dietetics. Um, But I always realised that I didn't want to work in a hospital. But of course, after I graduated from uh, dietetics, I was down in South Australia working in a hospital for about six months, but looking, you know, scoping the newspapers, looking out for job advertisements um, that might take me out of clinical dietetics into where I thought my passion would be. There was a job that was advertised in the Northern Territory for the regional dietitian for Northeast Arnhem Land. There was an amazing dietitian, Cecily Dignan, who very sadly um, passed away a number of years ago. But she had such a legacy. She had worked in the Northern Territory. She had worked in Papua, New Guinea. She took such a community development approach to working with communities in Northeast Arnhem Land, where she had been the dietitian for about six years or so. So this position was advertised and I was just so fortunate to be successful with being able to work in that position following Cecily. And so that took me up to go working across Northeast Arnhem Land. So that's where I was first introduced to the communities, Gallowinko, Gapuya, Karamaginning, uh, Ambakamba, Anurugu. And so that's where my journey working in Indigenous health started. I did feel that I was working with the government at the time, and I certainly felt that I felt some constraints with working with the government. You know, I I was so set on being able to take a community development approach. You know, I felt that as a nutritionist and a young nutritionist, I think I was about 27 at the time. In those days, there were real issues to do with undernutrition, you know, stunting, wasting in children. There was high rates of diarrheal disease in remote communities. And so a lot of my work was, you know, sitting down with the mums, with their bubs, talking about child feeding 
And these mums had come into the Gove Hospital because their their child had been diagnosed as failure to thrive, which it was called in those days, and uh, had come into hospital, you know, to be fed up, treated, etc., and then to go back to the community. And I just felt the frustration of one being so young and just not having, you know, that knowledge that mothers have, um, but also recognising that there's so much knowledge in communities. And so, you know, if I, of course, there were amazing Aboriginal health practitioners that we worked really closely with. But to me, it just made sense that there'd be members of the community that be trained up to have a focus on nutrition that I could then work alongside with rather than being, uh, you know, the person I suppose, expected to solve some of these issues. So then I felt, okay, it would be really good to work for a non-government organisation and actually get some good experience in community development. That took me to the Pacific Islands. But my love and my, I I really felt a connection with the Northern Territory. I think this happens to so many people that the spirit of the Northern Territory uh, gets into you and the, the people you just form such relationships with people. And so even though I'd only been there for two years, I felt this longing, I suppose, to come back to the Northern Territory at some time after gaining some experience in community development, public health nutrition, knowledge that I had learnt when I was at university, but certainly um, had a lot to learn from experience and being on the ground. Fantastic. And your PhD, was done before you? So I did my PhD later on in life. Okay. Um, after I came back from the South Pacific. So with the South Pacific, I worked with, say, the Children Australia, but positioned within the Ministry of Health. So working directly with the government and with different non-government organisations that were doing lots of uh, capacity building, empowering village workers around nutrition, food and, food and nutrition. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was such a good learning experience. But when I came back from the Pacific, that's where I worked with the government for a couple of years as a public health nutritionist, then had the opportunity to come to Menzies School of Health Research, where I tracked into academia and then did my PhD. Gosh, what a journey. So all those things you've just outlined, sounds as though they're still the things that uh, drive you and motivate the love of the top end and the people at the top end, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, being able to see, like you talked about before, you know, really being able to support that leadership of people in communities, you know, to address some of the nutrition issues, which have been continuing for such a long time in communities and we'll get to talk about food insecurity and uh, those issues soon. I think we caught up most recently to have a bit of a brainstorm um, about ideas where to from following the Commonwealth inquiry into food pricing and food security for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in remote Australia. That particular inquiry that presented their report in November 2020 <laughs> and that inquiry was in part triggered by the impacts of COVID on remote food security, food supplies and high food prices and of course there have been similar 
inquiries before, including everybody's business, remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community stores in 2009, with action on many recommendations from that report still outstanding. But what has demonstrably changed is the really good news about strengths-based community-owned and led action to tackle diet-related chronic disease and to come up with creative local solutions to promote and to provide healthy foods fit for local community needs and, and cultural contexts. Before we talk about some of the really good news, can you lead us in or, or help set the scene by outlining some of the big picture frames or facts, key characteristics perhaps, of what food security and diet-related preventable health challenges are and look like for many people living in remote communities? Food insecurity is a problem. It's been a problem in remote communities for a long time. And I think with Will Kenya at the moment, you know, in New South Wales, we're seeing the impacts of entrenched food insecurity. So food insecurity has been a problem for decades in remote communities. These communities are geographically you know, a long distance from supply centres. And so just to transport food out to communities is going to cost extra money. Then if we're living in a city, for example, and food needs to get delivered to supermarkets, obviously food is going to be cheaper in urban centres. So the problem of food insecurity the data that we've got is from the National Survey that was done in 2012, 2013, and it shows that for Indigenous peoples across Australia, you know, in remote areas as well as not remote areas, the prevalence is about 22%. So one in five people experiencing food insecurity. That means that people are worrying about food potentially going without food, experiencing hunger. So this is an issue across Australia. If we separate out very remote communities, and like I said, you know, there's issues that are very specific to remote communities because of the geographic isolation, small populations, etc. The cost of food is so much higher. We see that there's, from that national survey, about 31% of households reporting to have experienced food insecurity. So that means that in the last two weeks, there hasn't been enough money in that household to be able to buy food. So that means that people are going hungry at various times. Now that's 31%, so one in three households. That survey is reporting on remote communities. That also includes Darwin, it includes Alice Springs, you know, where the cost of food is not as much a problem, like it's still higher compared to southern states, but, you know, it's not as high as what the cost of food is in very remote communities. So we don't actually have a statistic for very remote community. We did some research a number of years ago, which uh, we published. We had the opportunity to work with five different very remote communities here in the top end. And we asked that same question about food security, food insecurity, to about 80 people that were participating in this study. From that, there were over 70% of those participants that responded yes to that question about do you experience food insecurity. So this suggests, and this is not the only data, you know, there's evidence from other studies that show that there's a much higher prevalence of food insecurity in very remote communities. And 
Dr. Megan Ferguson with the University of Queensland is leading a really important study at the moment, which is going to help us get a better handle on food insecurity in remote communities, not just in the Northern Territory, but in Northern Queensland as well. So we, we've got a problem with food insecurity. This means that, you know, households have got times, you know, payday happens. People have got access to money. People do a big shop. But then people run out of money. And we actually ask people, what do you do in this uh, situation, you know, where you just don't have enough money uh, to be able to buy food? And people talked about, you know, being able to access traditional foods or, you know, that network, the safety net of the family. So, you know, people being able to sharing is so important to people's culture in remote communities. And so there is that social safety net, you know, that comes into play. But it's just not enough to address the issues of high food prices, etc. And when I talk about high food prices, I don't know how many studies we have to do to show that the cost of food is higher in remote communities. So again, Dr. Megan Ferguson, who I mentioned before, she uh, did a study comparing the price of food in remote communities to a supermarket in Darwin and showed that it was over 60% higher. And the Market Basket Survey, which has been carried out by Northern Territory Health, you know, since the 1990s, it's now done once every two years. It was done annually. It has consistently shown this uh, price differential between the cost of food in remote communities and urban centres. Up to some 60% cost difference. So that's huge. You know, that means that if you're going shopping, Buying a basket of groceries for $100 uh, in a remote community, that same basket would cost about $160. Yeah, it's huge. People do know what to eat, but when you've got those tight budgetary constraints, you do have to buy the things that will fill you up and fill the fill the family up, don't you? Yes, exactly. One of your papers, I read something very interesting. Food stores are absolutely core and key, and so is local food production and local hunting and gathering. And as you say, people source traditional foods, but often that's quite difficult to do subject to wet seasons and um, ability to travel or if you're older or don't have access to transport or whatever it might be. But can you just touch on how the role of traditional foods in the communities that you've worked with? It's it's quite a significant contribution to diet, isn't it? My observation, you know, spending a lot of time in one community particularly and then having the opportunity particularly with the good food systems, to travel to other communities in the Northern Territory and Central Australia, is that traditional foods are just so important to people and people are still accessing a lot of traditional foods. You know, when it's magpie goose season, eating magpie goose, or when it's magpie goose uh, egg season, you know, eating the eggs of magpie geese. Yeah, people are accessing a lot of tr- traditional foods from my observations. And I've been very lucky, I must say, over my years to spend time with, particularly in Gullawinkle community, you know, going hunting on the weekends and getting mud crabs, going fishing collecting mud mussels, oysters. Uh, People, whenever there's an opportunity to go hunting, is my observation. People, you know, take up that opportunity. But like you said, Anthea, you still have to have resources 
to be able to access traditional foods. So, you know, you have to travel some distance. So, you know, having access to a vehicle or having a rifle, being able to have a license to be able to keep a rifle, all of those, yeah, all of those factors come into play as well. And what about the headline diet-related preventable chronic disease challenges? I mean, we know about them from Close the Gap. Over the years, have you seen the trends change or what What to you are still the standout diet-related challenges? When I started in the Northern Territory, working in North East Dartham Land in the late 1980s, I was 89 and 1990 that I was in that position of regional dietitian, diabetes was just starting to emerge and Professor Karen O'Day at that time was doing work with communities, the Mowanjum community and Fitzroy River community in Western Australia, and trying to understand why we were starting to see this increasing prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So in the late 1980s, you know, there weren't that many people that had type 2 diabetes, but it was certainly a condition that was on the increase. Then I went to the Solomon Islands for about nine years. And when I came back at the beginning of 2000, I actually worked with Professor Karen O'Day at Menzies School of Health Research here. And we worked very closely with a community in Northeast Arnhem Land, Gullawinkle community, on what was called the Healthy Lifestyle Study. And this was an amazing study where we worked so closely with an organisation called Yalu Marukadinurau in the community. And we had the opportunity to screen for type 2 diabetes and other related conditions. So about 40% of the adult population participated in this study. And what was amazing was that there was no type 2 diabetes identified in the younger population, so people less than 30 years of age. And what was really an important story from that study was showing that how the young population were particularly lean, like, you know, didn't weren't overweight, um, but, yes, really, really healthy in terms of BMI. But once, you know, people became middle-aged, like what happens to most of us in the rest of Australia, um, you know, that's when overweight uh, became a problem and that's where there was much higher prevalence of type 2 diabetes. But that was in the early 2000s and since that time, type 2 diabetes has become, you know, so, so much more prevalent in the younger population. So Professor Louise Maple-Brown here, you know, Menzies School of Health Research, is working really closely with Aboriginal health services um, and different organisations, you know, to try to tackle youth diabetes. But this is where nutrition, food insecurity, you know, play or food security plays such a key role in the prevention of these um, chronic diseases, which didn't exist, you know, before colonisation. And certainly, like I said, you know, we've really seen an increase in these chronic diseases since the 1980s, when there's been more access to unhealthy foods, I suppose, you know, in, in the stores, for example, you know, years ago, the issue was trying to get enough fresh produce out to community stores. But, you know, since the 2000s, I think we've seen the, the range of food certainly increase, 
But within that range, we've seen so much more unhealthy food. It's a range of soft drinks has got so... Has proliferated. Yes, has proliferated, as well as, you know, confectionery and those types of foods. Really, it's a story of a, a very fast and rapid nutrition transition within Australia, isn't it? With huge health challenges. And, and, what, about, and what about kidney disease? That does relate to diabetes quite directly, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. And just very briefly, Julie, what about undernutrition and stunting Is for, for younger children? That's a good news story, isn't it, that things are turning around there, are they or not? Definitely. Like I said, my experience in the 1980s was that was the key nutrition issue that we really focused on as public health nutritionists and dietitians. There was stunting, there was wasting, but we have seen improvements in that area. And also with the Close the Gap report, you know, that is one area where we have seen improvements. Infant and childhood health. Um, okay, let, let's, um, thank, thank you for that. It's such a huge <laughs> canvas to dig into. Let's talk now about how COVID impacted early in 2020. I mean, when the rest of Australia was scurrying around worrying about toilet paper, COVID and the impact on supply chains and stores was pretty dramatic in remote communities, wasn't it? Would you like to just tell us a little bit about what the impact of COVID in early 2020 to mid 2020 was like for remote communities? This was starting to happen around March, April last year, where yes, you know, shoppers were hoarding, like you said, but I think it was more complicated than that as well. It wasn't just the hoarding. I think perhaps it was the, you know, transportation supplies, etc. What we started to see in remote communities was the supply actually dwindle. The main supply stock, I suppose, down south, you know, it has to travel three and a half thousand kilometres uh, to come up to Darwin or, you know, to get to Alice Springs. Then it has to get out to the remote communities. And so it was really fascinating because it was the Central Lands Council, the Northern Lands Council, Aboriginal health organisations, you know, making observations that there was reduced food supply available to come onto the shelves in remote communities. Around this time, there are about 13 or 14 Indigenous organisations that came together, which was such a strong advocacy collective to really advocate to the Commonwealth Government that this would have to be addressed if the Commonwealth Government, you know, didn't step in to ensure food supplies for remote communities, then there was going to be a big issue. And so as a result of that, there was a food security, national food security kind of task force that was formed and it did have the major supermarkets, Woolies, Coles, for example, represented on that task force together with some of the big store group operating in remote communities, such as Land Progress, Aboriginal Corporation, Outback Stores, and the major supermarkets ensured that there would be enough supplies put aside to be able to supply remote community stores. So to me, that leadership I think was very telling and and uh, very that that collective, you know, certainly had had strength and you know resulted in this 
Food Security Task Force being formed. And, and it coincided with the inquiry being launched, is that right? Yes, but there was lots happening in the press. There were a lot of uh, press releases that were actually coming from Aboriginal organisations, Health Services, Central Lands Council, like I said, and there was also a lot of raising of the high prices that people were having to buy for food. And there were real concerns that, you know, if people weren't able to work, for example, that people just wouldn't be able to afford food and we'd be in a dire straight situation because, you know, we've already experiencing food insecurity in remote communities, that it would be a lot worse. And so there was a lot of agitation and pressure being put on the government to really look into the problem of food security, food insecurity in remote communities, as well as the high food prices. There was concern that there might be price gouging, not that people thought that this was a new issue because of COVID-19, but it just came to people's attention more, I suppose, at that time. And there are all the supply chain issues and really Aboriginal leadership, as you've just said, put pressure on the government to sort of coordinate a really a holistic response and get get everyone around the table. With, yes. In 2021, the, the situation's hopefully fairly different, is it? I think what concerns me is that it was demonstrated in the Northern Territory that there's that advocacy kind of power and that response from government. My concern is perhaps that's not across remote Australia. And so, you know, I think the Wilkenia case, for example, you know, obviously the Wilkenia community have come together and put different types of strategies in place, you know, to make sure that if people are having to isolate at home, you know, that they're able to get food supplies. And I think there was an occasion where the supermarket actually shut down because there was somebody with COVID and the closest shop is about two hours away. So, you know, obviously the community have rallied around and the Aboriginal Health Service, you know, I think have really advocated to the government, you know, to recognise the issue in that community. But I think what we definitely need to work towards is some kind of coordinated national response to issues of food insecurity. To not be in a situation where we're having to be so reactive you know, because I think what COVID-19 has done is revealed where the gaps are, the kind of pressure points are or the weaknesses, I suppose. So now we have to think about, okay, what is the systemic solution to food insecurity? You know, because it can't just be providing food relief. That's not a sustainable response to food insecurity. And we have to stop tiptoeing or neglecting the high cost of food in remote communities. And that remote stores can only do so much to try to address that price differential. I don't know why the government is so reluctant to consider food subsidies for remote communities because the cost benefit in terms of health savings to me would have to outweigh the cost of the subsidy. Yeah, and, and, and we need a national food plan, but we particularly need one for the most vulnerable communities in our country. And it's a, it's a bit similar to the whole COVID uh, vaccination rollout, isn't it? You know, there are priority groups who need 
uh, coordinated national action and attention perhaps first. And it's in, it's interesting, I live in New South Wales so, and I'm from northern northwest New South Wales. So it's interesting that there are many quite large communities in New South Wales, but as a proportion of the state of, of remote Aboriginal people, it's not the same as in the Territory at where Aboriginal people make up a very large proportion of the population and they are organised and they have power and they are listened to in a very meaningful way. Yeah. Yes. That's fascinating. Okay. So I think it's that, I think it's that leadership. You mentioned a national plan, you know, to address food security, you know, particularly for remote Indigenous populations and other populations that are at risk. But it's that leadership that needs to be tapped into to forge the pathway of what this uh, solution to food insecurity is going to look like mm-hmm. um, because it can't be policymakers, you know, sitting in Canberra or, or other places, you know, it has to come from that leadership which certainly show, showed its strength and collective uh, during the time of uh, COVID-19 last year in the Northern Territory. Yeah, well, that, that's a, a very good uh, lead-in to... To turn now to um, to some really good news that is just elaborates what you've just been speaking about and good news that many mainstream and urban Australians may not often get to hear about. So let's talk about the two connected, pretty amazing research and outreach activities that you've been involved in most recently. In June this year, you and colleagues and a powerhouse working group that uh, no doubt involved many of the people from the task force you're talking about, convened a really amazing um, webinar series yeah. um, called Healthy Stories, and there's there's a, an emphasis there on the stores and the stories, um, Healthy Stories, Good Food Event, that addressed the issue of remote food security and local solutions. It was a really rich celebration and sharing of stories, and it was really frank and candid about the barriers and the challenges, as you have been, but all with a focus on action underway for greater food security and empowering local people to just get on with it. Can you tell us about how and why the webinar series came about? Because it had a few different iterations and and, and you were very nimble with, with, with moving it forward. <laughs> yes, yes. Initially, the idea was we host a remote store symposium that would give opportunity for some of the amazing initiatives that are being led by remote communities, you know, in improving their stores to help customers purchase healthier food, for those stories to be told and to be recognised. And so this came on the back of a study which we had National Health Medical Research Council funding for called Healthy Stores 2020. So we had some really good news stories that came out of that study that we conducted in really close partnership with the Arnhem Land Progress Aboriginal Corporation, ALPA. The the funding was actually to be able to disseminate the good food stories that came out of Healthy Stores 2020. And then we went, you know what, There's there's the good Healthy Stores 2020 story, but there's so many other good stories out there that we can learn from where communities are putting in place local policies to help improve their stores. So the idea was, yes, to to hold this remote um, stores food symposium. We started talking about this at the same time that AMSAND were starting to talk and plan uh, for their Northern Territory uh, Food Summit. And so we started talking together uh, to, to determine, you know, how best... Uh, we could work together in pulling off these two different events and certainly making sure that there was 
opportunity uh, for community, you know, to have a strong voice in talking about the issues of stores, in talking about the issues of food security, like we've just talked about, and thinking about the pathway forward. So we formed this amazing working group of about 32 people. We had eight Indigenous advisors who were part of that working group, lots of different organisations represented across remote Australia. And then about halfway through last year, we just went, you know what, how are we going to do this? We can't get people face to face. This is just too risky. So I thought, okay, we want to showcase uh, stories from remote communities. How about we film those stories and uh, see see if we uh, could work with communities, you know, to film those stories and then we bring them to life through some kind of online event. The working group just uh, got behind it. And so there was a process that we worked through and identify the different stories. We had criteria that we use, you know, to make sure that the stories that were being told were community led, you know, really uh, Indigenous people were, you know, at the forefront of those stories and that they were focused on the store and helping to improve the healthiness of food in the store. So that's how that four-part webinar series came about. Did you and the team have some special fun getting those uh, films filmed? I believe um, Graham Bidstrup from the Jimmy Little Foundation, you know, rock star that he is and so long committed to remote communities. Uh, tell us about what how Buzz went out and filmed. Buzz was pretty amazing. He had another videographer uh, with him, Amy... She's with uh, Light Tree Studio, I think the name of her company is. Buzz was on the working group. And when we were talking about, you know, how are we going to, we'd identify the stories, we'd actually use the report that came and all of the submissions to the food pricing inquiry to help identify these stories. And then um, just that collective knowledge, you know, the brain of the working group and all of their contacts helping to identify stories as well. And then Buzz was on the working group and he goes, well, I could get up to the Northern Territory and do this. <laughs> so that's what Buzz did for the following two months. It just uh, happened. And, uh, you know, Buzz was up in the top in the Northern Territory. Then he was down in Tea Tree. Then he was down in Alice Springs. Then he was up in Northern Queensland working with uh, different videographers and very much working with organisations with people who had never, people in communities, you know, who hadn't had that experience of, you know, getting onto the computer and having a Zoom meeting were part of it. You know, Stacey managed to organise all of that. And so it was just great, you know, that these stories with Buzz on the ground, as well as Stacey communicating with the organisations and people in the community, you know, the, the stories developed. They were, they were just such powerful stories. And now they've been recorded and they're available for everyone to look at as an ongoing resource and inspiration. But let, let's come back to those because there are some amazing stories. There's a beautiful community definition of food security from the Good Food Systems Project. That's included in Monash's submission to the recent inquiry that you've just mentioned. <laughs> and there were something like a, over 100 submissions to that inquiry. It was pretty amazing. And that definition seems pretty pitch perfect to me with the spirit of the webinars and the mix of stories that they showcase. And I'm just going to read it. Food security for us is when the food of our ancestors is protected and always there for us and our children. It is when we can easily access and afford the right non-traditional food for a collective health and active life. 
When we are food secure, we can provide, share and fulfil our responsibilities. We can choose good food, knowing how to make choices and how to prepare and use it. The webinars were hosted by Nicole Turner, who is from New South Wales and from the Indigenous Mm. Allied Health Australia and New South Wales Rural Doctors Network. So she is fully aware of the challenges and very passionate about making change. And she did such a fantastic job, didn't she, Julie? She was. She's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And, And the webinars included stories, as you say, from across remote Australia. There were four interrelated themes and each webinar included short films, uh, presentations, and a bit of a Q&A session. Um, the webinars overall were really well attended, weren't they, Julie? There were hundreds of people. Oh, yes. We had about 200 people on that for each register, for each webinar. Lots of those people participated, maybe maybe about half. But then after the webinar series, all of the people that registered, uh, you know, received uh, a, a link to the webinar series. So there was just such amazing participation let's run through them a bit share the richness of them and let's talk about a few of the special moments and stories and perhaps key highlights for you so the first webinar the theme for that one was uh, remote stores healthy takeaways employment opportunities and there were four stories in that one Uh, there was the incredible story from Karen Sheldon catering and training uh, who she's she's a darwin based lady who does this amazing runs a big catering business but does a lot of direct training with a whole lot of amazing aboriginal ladies and young men and have produced this incredible healthy takeaway with bush food ingredients in it that that sells to alpa would you like to talk about that a bit that that's an amazing story so alpa a lot of people would know, you know, services, owns and services together about 20, 25 stores or so in the Northern Territory and Northern Queensland. A lot of these stores have got a takeaway outlet um, and they have staff employed in the takeaways, you know, preparing breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, different types of meals. Healthy takeaways play an incredibly important role in remote communities, in some ways quite different to, to more urban Australia, don't they, because of the nature of big families and mixed households and so forth. Is that is that right? In uh, communities, my observation and experience is that, you know, there are some families that, um, that do rely on takeaway, you know, because people may not have the food preparation facilities within their homes. There might be a lot of family living together in a house. And so, you know, people do rely on takeaway. So it is important that there's healthy options that are available for people to purchase. So Alpa with their stores, a lot of the stores do have a takeaway outlet. And so they've worked with Karen Sheldon in actually developing a a range of different types of foods, range of really healthy, tasty meals. And they really fill a gap for the takeaways because there's days where you know, staff may not be able to attend the takeaway because there's cultural obligations. There might be a funeral or there might be other events happening in the community. So if Alpa has this range of products that they can, you know, heat up and make available and they're tasty and nutritious, this is a fantastic solution because in the past, if there were issues with staffing, et cetera, for various reasons, then, you know, the go-to probably be the pies, the sausage rolls, the uh, chicken kebabs, hot dogs, et cetera. So this is a fantastic solution. That can provide a whole meal, can be easily prepared. And I just hope that we see more of those stories 
um, in the future. On on that sort of note about, you know, developing, training local people to sort of cook, prepare, share, sell foods that they love. There was another great story in that first webinar series that I just really, really loved from Maningrida, the Wild Foods Cafe, Kala Barabara Cafe, which was really all about fishing and preparing fantastic barramundi and local seafood and all done by local people and people taking so much pride in what they were doing. Do you want to talk about that? It's an amazing story. And this is the vision of Boltnunga Aboriginal Corporation where, you know, they're supporting economic initiatives around local food production, local food harvesting, like they've got the, the fishing business, they've got the bush food enterprise, and then it's making those foods available through the cafe. No. And what I what really resonated with me in that story or struck me from that story was the pride that the employees, the staff of the cafe had in the cafe, in the work that they were doing, in bringing, you know, those foods which were really important to them to the community. So to me, it's uh, it's such an important story. And we do want to see more of these stories in remote communities. At the moment, there seem to be some issues in to do with food safety and those types of regulations in stores being able to sell on the local produce. And I suppose there's, you know, supply issues and that type of thing. So, you know, I think this is an area where it's important to have good investment. The, the local food production and people's passion for that area can really be harnessed and optimised to help address sustainable food security. Because I think that story is amazing because it's such a linked up community project, isn't it? It's 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 the fishing, it's the cafe, it's the bush foods, as in the extra herbs and spices and sauces, you know, which are just amazing. And it's intergenerational. It's just such a gorgeous project. I really love seeing Leela Nimbadja, who's a, an, an elder in Maningrida, who I met years ago out at Maningrida. And she was, to hear her speak about the bush foods and the foods that she was harvesting and teach younger kids about, and see those foods end up as garnishes and as key ingredients in that cafe. It was just so beautiful. And, of course, Karen Sheldon and her, her team were recently on Moving Back to the Country on the ABC. Webinar 2 was about food supply, delivery, and local food economies. Obviously, they're all interrelated. There were some cracker stories in that one as well. Um, I think there were three films one of which was Wild Foods Enterprises from Manigreta that we've just spoken about, but linked up with their Tucker Run. Would you like to talk about the Tucker Run? Oh, the Tucker Run. That was that was such a that was such an amazing story. So obviously Manigreta community, it's a big community. It's got the the store, it's got a number of different cafes and stores in the community. But then there's the population that lives outside of the community on the homelands, you know, so smaller family groups living on their country, looking after their country, uh, accessing traditional foods, you know, schooling children on country, etc. People on country living in the homeland still need to be able to access groceries and different types of essential items. So the Tucker Run, again, another vision of Boanonga Aboriginal Corporation, is all about, you know, making sure that 
people on homelands can can get groceries at affordable prices. So if the Tucker run wasn't in place, people would actually have to spend, you know, a lot of money, a lot of time coming into Metagreda and uh, buying their groceries and uh, going back to their community. And one of the films, I think it was in the third webinar series, the Lanakoi Health Service or the Lanapoi Aboriginal Corporation, their story was very similar to the Takaran, but they were saying that it would cost people from Gungan community, for example, which is a homeland in northeast Arnhem Land, it would cost $650 to get into Nullumboy to the supermarket. So, and was that fire a taxi? Was that, was that? Yeah, that's what they call a bush taxi. So, you know, $650. So, you know, how much money have you got left to buy on groceries when you've spent that amount of money on the taxi? Yeah. And he also sort of spoke about how people want to stay on their homelands. And the sort of the subtext there also is that, you know, Manningrid is a big community. It's quite crowded and it's so it's costly for people to come in. And it's also tricky, perhaps, if there's limited housing and things like that, wasn't there? Yes, exactly. And the chair of Bonanga Association, he talked very strongly about this Takaran, you know, provides its model that could actually be applied in other regions because people do want to stay on their homelands. And it's really important that mm. um, people have this kind of service uh, to enable them to live on their homelands. Another great film in webinar two <laughs> was from Cape York in North Queensland. And it was all about a local Indigenous run abattoir supplying their local uh, remote food store in in. In, in Caesia, is that how you pronounce it? Um, that that amazing local meat works, which just sort of sound just sounds so sort of obvious and common sense, doesn't it? But it was just so uh, exciting, really, because clearly a regular supply of of fresh meat rather than frozen frozen meat, which is often poor cuts transported over thousands of kilometres is just such a no-brainer to get rid of. <laughs> so the, the, the guys in that community were really excited about what they were doing, weren't they? Yes, 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 yeah. And again, you know, another Indigenous-owned initiative providing, you know, really good fresh quality food supply to the community. And in that film they talked about, you know, the problems of being able to transport meat you know, from down south up to that very, you know, geographically remote place in northern Queensland. And then also the spin-offs of that meatworks as well. You know, they they did have the abattoir and so they were able to train up local people in butchery. So, you know, these types of initiatives can certainly help address, you know, employment, uh, food supply, you know, lot, lots of lots of different issues. Yeah, that was that was an exciting story. And just and just you know, in the twenty first century, local food economies, you know, like you yes, want to be exactly. growing and eating it fairly close to where you are. Really, it was just yeah, exactly. Well, this is definitely something that has to be considered for remote communities. And webinar three was about food affordability and pricing for healthy food, and it had two sort of films. One of which was the Lanapoi Homelands um, Essential Health Essential services health model for their provision of a similar sort of uh, store on store on wheels on the road going out to homelands so that homelands could maintain their own little stores but with fresh produce in them is that right yes and this is a, and this was an amazing story of 
Lanapoi Health Service or Aboriginal Corporation training up people in the community to be shopkeepers. Yeah. So in that story in the homeland of Gangan, we meet a number of uh, young women and uh, a number of men that are shopkeepers in that store and then, you know, telling their story about the store, how important it is, uh, the types of uh, jobs that they do, you know, within that store. Uh so that, that showcased one of the Lanapoi Aboriginal Corporation stores, but there are a number of different stores um, that they support as well. Incredible um, sort of business and retail skills that people are developing that they can use in all sorts of ways. And, and that also resonated with the story from Thursday Island in North Queensland, which I think had a focus on fruit and vegetables, on quality and pricing improvements, but with a big emphasis on staff tra- local staff training and ownership of how they would take that into their ongoing store management so on is that right yeah that was that was such a strong story that came through that film um local people you know being in those those management positions and so having the opportunity to train up other staff and how that was so important and a number of people I think it was in the first webinar series as well there were a couple of young women Alma and Dottie from our back stores Um, And they also talked about how important it is that Indigenous people have the opportunity to be trained by Indigenous people. And I think those stories from Northern Queensland were just so inspiring that, you know, we can, you know, through support and training, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, can be managing their community stores. And that was something that Dottie and Alma uh, really inspired too, I think. I think Dottie. Um, I know she's heading to be general manager before you know it. She's 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 on a roll. And and you know it was lovely to have um, people from a Punapima Cape York Health Council presenting and talking in that session too, because they're such an incredible health organisation in Queensland, aren't they? Absolutely, they've got a very strong position paper about food security. Mm. You know, which highlights the issue about the high cost of food in remote communities and the approach that could be taken to address that. Yeah, and finally, the fourth webinar um, <laughs> was on the four P's of marketing for healthy food in stores, and I know this is absolutely core key interest and core business yeah. to you. Um, yeah. And there were four great stories in that webinar, a lot of which related to um, nutrition policies, nutrition promotion and effective social marketing, and one from Bijadanga Community Store in WA, another one from uh, Alcuta and Ali Karang in the Northern Territory about sugar reduction strategies and community store policies. But perhaps two we might focus on, uh, uh, two that you know very, very well and you're uh, absolutely embedded in. Um, there was a lovely story that gorgeous Graham Bidstrup from Jimmy Little Foundation, the um, Good Tucker app. Um, his story, he's worked with so many communities uh, promoting healthy food choices and healthy drink choices. Um, but that story was from Santa Teresa, um, their Good Tucker Long Life store and nutrition policy that very much includes the Good Tucker app. Would you like to talk a little bit about Thumbs Up and the Jimmy Little Foundation and how they've worked with you over the years? It's, 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 a, long, it's a long story. Yeah, we go back a number of years. Um, to the Fred Hollows Foundation, doesn't it? Doesn't it go back to... Um, yes, I think, I think it does go back to the... Fred Hollows Foundation, but um, 
certainly go back many years um, working with Buzz, like you said, Anthea, I think it goes back to the dates of the Fred Hollows Foundation when they were when they were very active in the remote store space and also community garden. So um, Buzz through the what was the Jimmy Little Foundation at that time, you know, was doing a lot of promotion of healthy food in community stores and had developed this uh, iconic sticker that just had the thumbs up. Um, and that sticker, if you go out to a remote community store, I'm sure you will see those stickers and you will see posters of that thumbs up. That was mainly put on fruit and vegetables and bottled water. And then uh, I think Buzz and I, we were sitting down here at Menzies School of Health Research one day and, you know, just kind of talking about stories, things that we'd heard from people in communities. And one of the stories was people saying, you know, we just want to know what is the healthy food? You know, it can't be that hard. Uh, you know, can we can we have a, a corridor in the store, for example, which has just got the healthy food? Um, or can we have some kind of shelf talker that shows the healthy food? And for years, this is something that public health nutritionists with remote communities have really excelled in is, you know, at various times having projects with the community where they develop, you know, a shelf sticker to show the healthy foods like the Vigianga um, project. And so um, we went, well, the George Institute has got the food switch app, you know, that where people can scan on a product um, and get information on the healthiness of that product. So can we, you know, capitalise on the thumbs up symbol, which, you know, so many people recognise in remote communities and come up with an app that would allow people to scan on a product and it would give a thumbs up, a thumb sideways or a thumbs down. So that's how that app developed. That was a number of years ago now and we're still, you know, Buzz is still uh, promoting the app where, you know, looking at different ways that we might be able to integrate it into the health uh, health services, uh, where it could be, you know, promoted to clients who might be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure and uh, really having to, you know, think about what foods they're purchasing in the store. Making it a little bit more f uh, focused on very particular conditions that people need to be particularly careful. Oh, absolutely. And then that story from Santa Teresa that talked about the Good Tucker app, but it also showed the what they called the promo materials that have been developed through a collaboration with Thumbs Up Outback Stores and Alpa with community. So, you know, just providing more information to customers about, you know, what different products you might put together, you know, to make a healthier meal. If you're going to have uh, noodles, for example, you know, throw in some, some frozen vegetables, you know, if you're looking for a quick meal. Uh, so those promotional materials are being used in different communities. Thumbs up and Graham Bidstrup's work with the Jimmy Little Foundation over many years, like you, has been pretty amazing. And last but certainly not least, uh, the fourth story in that fourth webinar <laughs> was, um, was all about Healthy Stores 2020. That's uh, the project that you've been so busy with and doing, kicking such amazing goals with. Um, and that, that the Healthy Stores 2020 study was a collaboration between the Arnhem Land Progress Association, ALPA, as you've said, and Monash University. 
And it really is a game-changing story, and it's a project that has involved co-design with remote community leaders and retailers, and to lead not just in Australia, but but really internationally, it seems. So it's an Australia first, but it looks pretty much like a world first. There's a, there's a great quote in the final report from Healthy Stores 2020 that says, Healthy Stores 2020, as far as we understand, is a world first to restrict merchandising of unhealthy food and drinks. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in Australia are fully aware of the impact of the environment, the retail environment, on people's diets and health. We hope the boldness of ALPA and the success of Healthy Stores 2020 will encourage the Australian retail sector to join ALPA and store directors to transform Australia's food retail sector to be health enabling. That's a pretty big claim. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, we've got a big vision. <laughs> we've got a big vision. So, so no, absolutely. So, so I, um, I just sort of thought it's nice to sort of present the stakes up front because it's really inspiring from little things amazing big things grow and uh, proliferate in the system so so Julie um tell us about it I mean it's so much that where where to start um in many ways it's it's a cumulative next step of all the great research you've done over many years and it's and it's a testament to the relationship that you have with remote communities and with ALPA would you like to describe the project's overall goal and perhaps elaborate it in relation to the key action outcomes from it which are as I understand, the key elements of the Healthy Stores Action Policy Action Series. So, Julie, it's a really groundbreaking project and, and there's a lot to get your head around. But I'm just wondering, could for, for the rest of us, could you please, would you like to describe the project's overall goal and perhaps elaborate it and its outcomes with relation to the key action outcomes from it that are the key elements of the Healthy Stores Policy Action Series that are such powerful tools for the broader food stores sector. And I, and I think those relate to the four Ps of successful marketing. There's the nutrition policy at the top and then the other three policies. Would you like to talk about those? Yeah, sure. What an opportunity. I'd love to talk about Healthy Stores 2020. Uh, so the first question, the goal. So that immediately what comes to my mind is the ALPA nutrition, health and nutrition policy. So ALPA, you know, since the 1980s have had this policy about um, making sure that, you know, there's healthy, affordable food for people to purchase in the community and helping to improve the health of the community. So ALPA over many years had a focus on the provision of healthy foods. You know, they've got a they don't charge freight, for example, on fruit and vegetables. So they had really focused and made some good advancements in being able to promote healthy food. They had started to look at how they might be able to not promote or disincentivize, I suppose, unhealthy food. And that's where we saw that we had a very common agenda, you know, because we were interested in seeing as well if, um, if we restricted the promotion of unhealthy food in stores, you know, could that help customers purchase more healthy foods and drinks and less of the unhealthy foods and drinks? And what would be the impact on business outcomes? And that was really important to Alpa was to show, can we do this? One, is it going to be feasible? What is going to be the response from customers? Two, um, is it going to actually have the effect that we all hope that it would have to reduce the purchase of 
uh, sugars from foods and drinks, which was the goal here for Healthy Stores 2020. And three, can we do this without it impacting adversely on store profits? Because, you know, community stores, their businesses, they have to, they have to be viable businesses. So our goal was uh, the goal of Healthy Stores 2020 was work together um, to see if we could actually achieve all of those all of those different things. And it was very much about co-design. And if we hadn't uh, taken that approach of co-design and worked in partnership with Alpa, we certainly wouldn't have had the successes that we had with Healthy Stores 2020. And that the Healthy Stores 2020 was really driven from the Alpa board, you know, because their goal uh, help improve the health of communities through, you know, making sure that there's healthy, affordable food. Just, you know, mentioning the Alpa board, can you tell us what's so special about the Alpa board? I mean, it's it's a very amazing organisation, isn't it? Who's the board comprised of? The Alpa board comprises representatives of each of the different communities where there's Alpa-owned stores uh, so the chair of the board, for example, Reverend uh, Ginny Yinny, he has been chair of the Alpa board for over 25 years. The Alpa board, because it's made up of directors who represent their communities, you know, the directors are very much in touch with the community, what the issues are in the community, what's needed for their communities. And so that's what you see coming through the ALPA policies. And they can see the health changes that have been happening that you flagged earlier in our conversation in terms of um, diabetes not being so prevalent 20 or 30 years ago and and uh, health issues in early middle age. Yep. Yes, and, you know, they've observed the dramatic changes in the food supply as well and, um, and see that direct connect between uh, diet and health you know, what people are consuming or what people, um, what options people have to purchase and their health. So, you know, that that's um, something that's very important to, to the store board. The outcomes of Healthy Stores 2020 were we did see a reduction in the amount of sugar that people were purchasing from foods and drinks. So we targeted, we were able to work with uh, Alpa and have a look at the point of sale data and from that, we could see, okay, these are the key products that are contributing most to sugar that people are purchasing. So it was table sugar, soft drink, confectionery and sweet biscuits. So we targeted those. So, you know, reduce the facings. They couldn't be promoted in the store. They couldn't be in visible areas like at the counter or the end of aisles etc i'm just looking at, at your wonderful there's a the strategy there were sort of the nine actions of no promo, no promotions no misleading promotions no large soft drinks in fridges <laughs> floor stickers lovely love such lovely clear actions yeah so yeah so all of those actions so what it led to was people purchased less of those products and uh, as a result of that purchased less sugar so in fact, um, it was a huge amount of sugar. I think it was about one tonne of sugar or so, or hang on, let me think. I can't remember, eight tonnes or something. I think it, was, I think it might have been 1.7 tonnes. Yeah, so, so there were these amazing outcomes. But I think what was really important to Alpa is that we were able to show that it didn't um, impact adversely on business outcomes. 
and the store managers. You know, we interviewed store managers and um, most of the store managers were incredibly supportive of their strategy. We actually, with Alpa, helped set up the strategy in the stores and then and did that with the store managers and the staff. And then once it was set up, it was up to the store managers to maintain it. And they just championed the strategy. They supported their staff, communicated what needed to be done. They did have to modify their stocking and uh, ordering practices a little bit at the start because, you know, suddenly people uh, were purchasing more water or more diet drinks or more 600 mils instead of, you know, 1.25 mils of soft drinks. So, you know, the store managers, they're experts in um, modifying their practice, you know, based on changes in customer purchasing. So so that was really good, you know, to know that um, the store managers were really supportive. So as a result of um, uh, those outcomes, uh, Alpa then fed back the story to the store directors, to the output board, as well as the store directors. And now that strategy is embedded in the Alpa health and nutrition policy. So basically all of the Alpa stores, if you walk into an Alpa store, uh, you won't be seeing confectionery at the counter or, you know, unhealthy food promoted at the end of aisles. So then there was also some work happening going, okay, well, this is really great that we've had the opportunity to do this study with Alpa, but how can we support other remote stores? You know, because like we talked about before, the store directors, you know, who are looking after their stores in remote communities, you know, they, they often, they've put different policy initiatives in place. You know, for example, there's this, there's this one store, Jilt Milken, uh, down in the Catherine region. And I remember going to this store a number of years ago and seeing this sign where the chips and the confectionery um, is. And it said, uh, no sale of these products until after 2.30. And this is, I know, and this is a policy that the store directors put in place because um, the story that, that I've been told is, you know, one of those directors um, has got chronic kidney disease and, you know, was really concerned about children, for example, purchasing those types of products. And so, and that policy has been put in place for a long time. So we went, well, how can we support this um, policy decision-making that, you know, leaders in community store directors are already doing? You know, how can we strengthen it? And how can we share this evidence from Healthy Stores 2020 with them? So then uh, Dr. Megan Ferguson with University of Queensland, she did a review of the evidence, you know, from right across the world, what are the different policies um, that have been shown to be effective around pricing, promotion, placement, et cetera. Um, and then we presented, we brought together store directors, food retailers, public health nutritionists, um, had a workshop, presented that evidence, and then came up with a set of policy actions um, that that group of stakeholders thought would be feasible and acceptable for their stores. So that's the policy action series. And now we're in the process of starting up another research project uh, where we can actually uh, work together with the public health nutritionists um, and health promotion officers and uh, coach them and support them 
to be able to work with stores. I think I've seen I've I think I've seen some um, emails about courses that people can sign up for online. Um, so 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 in a nutshell, tackling sugar, particularly sugary drinks and uh, discretionary foods that might not have much other nutritional value to offer so that people can spend their bo- dollars and get more nutritional and food bang for their buck, good for health, good for the store. And central to it all in the project was uh, the store nutrition policy as a way of um, getting it in place, getting buy-in from the whole store and broader community to maximise the feasibility and acceptability of all the other following policy actions. And as you've said, you and uh, Dr Ferguson you know, looked around best practice worldwide, related it to your study, and you've come up with these three policy actions which are around product placement and promotion of healthy foods and drinks, product placement and promotion of unhealthy foods and drinks and how they should be dealt with, and and price and price promotion on food and drinks. So there's a huge amount to unpack there, and it's just, just so amazing. So And now you're into the training mode by the sound of things. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, building that capacity to be able to support stores to consider these policy actions for their stores. Just going back to the webinar series, there were a couple of films, the one from uh, Ali Krung and Angawala, these two films where there were store directors that were actually talking about the policies that they had put in place in their stores. And to me, what really struck me was that ownership of the policy because those stores are um, working like they've got a service agreement with Outback stores and working with Outback stores. And so these policy actions were presented to the store directors It showcased store directors um, in both of those communities talking about the policies which the store directors had decided to put in place in their stores. And what struck me was how important those policies were for those store directors Um, and and the role of the store directors in making sure that the community was well-informed of those policies and the rationale for those policies. And I loved um, one store director, you know, she she was talking about how successful this policy had been and how the store directors were thinking about, you know, extending the policy to confectionery, for example. I think they had a focus on soft drinks. But she said, you know, we just need to go slowly slowly, you know, to make sure that we've got the community with us. But, you know, it really made me reflect on the importance of, you know, store directors having the power to be able to make decisions for their stores. Alpha and Outback don't manage all the stores. There are other little stores who work in subcontract. And and, and those directors buying into and understanding and, and embracing why you have these food nutrition, store nutrition policies. And so and so it sets up the trust and confidence for why you do all these other things. Yes, exactly, because to make good policy decisions, you have to have good information available to you. So, you know, how can, how can we put those kinds of structures in place to make sure that store directors, you know, are getting that information that they need, like you said? Yeah, and then be backed up, and then be backed up by resources and information and advice and training for their staff and their staff. Yeah, it's fabulous. Julie, thank you. Healthy Stores 2020 and the thumb and the thumbs up app, I see, are listed as related projects on a big new research project, big new research program called Refresh, the the Centre for Research Excellence in Food Retail Environments for Health that 
I think is based out of Deakin, but has people from many universities. And you're you're listed as one of the chief investigators of that new centre. Where 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 next? Where next for you? Where where to for you? Where to with remote communities and in relation to refresh? Will you be doing more of the same? Will you be doing more of your remote work embedded within? collaboration with Refresh or are there new new research agendas on the horizon for you? Uh, my passion is to continue the research programs that we've had happening with remote communities and uh, Indigenous leaders for a number of years now. I mean, what, it, what I'm feeling um, really happy about is just to see, you know, younger public health nutritionists and researchers, you know, really flying the flag for public health nutrition in remote communities and addressing food security. You know, there's, we've just got such amazing champions and uh, leaders emerging. There's a number of other people. We've got more Indigenous dietitians and nutritionists. And so, you know, we've just got such um, such an amazing workforce, I think, you know, to, to continue this work. We have been really fortunate in being able to get some medical research future funding uh, to continue this work around the policy actions. So we've got the evidence now, like we've been talking about, we've got, um, you know, store directors who are making policy for their stores. Our research is going to be co-designing with retailers, store directors, public health nutritionists, uh, what we're calling a benchmarking approach to healthy stores where we can put those structures in place to make sure that store directors are getting the information and the evidence that they need. And also, you know, supporting the capacity of the public health nutritionists that are working with stores uh, to be able to co-design policy actions with stores and, you know, be able to put in place nutrition policies uh, to sustain things into the future. So, that's where we're up to at the moment. And that that's that's what I'm going to be continuing to work on. But with Refresh, yeah. it's been great to be involved with Refresh and be in a community of like-minded people, you know, who have got such a passion about uh, food retail and how it's so important for um, population health. I think, though, that, you know, because there's been such... Um, trailblazing work that's being led by remote communities that we've actually been able to share a lot of um, what we've learned from working with remote communities to researchers who are working in urban and regional settings. A great opportunity but also a very, very nice uh, uh, turn the tables example of where of where innovation comes from. <laughs> Julie, thank you. Any further thoughts or final comments? Anthea, thank you for this opportunity. This has been amazing to be able to reflect on this journey. Um, but I must say I am looking forward to the government response to the recommendations that came out of the parliamentary inquiry into food pricing and food security for remote communities. It's been some time now. We're waiting. It was to be released around end of June, July. It's now September. So this is going to be an important report. We're going to have to all get together and do a lot of advocacy, I think, once that those recommendations come out because we don't want the situation where in three years' time or five years' time we've got another inquiry about food pricing in remote communities. And we've had 
COVID, we've seen where the weaknesses are, we've seen where the cracks are. COVID is not going to go away. And we've got the issues of climate change that we're going to have to face as well. So, you know, unless we start to take food security really seriously, sustainable food security uh, for remote communities and other populations um, at risk in Australia, then we're going to, um, you know, continue to be having to address high prevalence of chronic disease as well as um, other diet-related problems. So, yes, this it needs to be addressed. Bring the report out sooner than later and let's see what AMSAN has to say from their summit as well. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, let's let's... Let's work together. You know, I think there's a lot of, like we talked about before, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has certainly demonstrated the collective power and strength of Aboriginal organisations, you know, to advocate for food security. So, you know, amazing power there. So, yeah, it'd be great to all work together on going forward with addressing food insecurity. Julie, it's been such a pleasure catching up and speaking with you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Anthea. And um, yeah, this is great that you're doing this podcast on Nourishing Matters. Yeah, talking about all of these uh, really important issues. Um, Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Julie. To learn more about Healthy Stores 2020 and the Policy Action Series tools it made available, head to monash.edu backslash medicine backslash healthy dash stores dash 2020. And to watch and be really inspired by the Healthy Stories Good Food webinar stories and films, we've discussed uh, quite a lot today, head to monash.edu backslash medicine backslash healthy dash stores dash 2020 backslash online dash series. Julie, thanks so much. Uh, Thank you, Andrea. Fantastic. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.